Welcome to States and Migration in Europe, a podcast that explores the interactions between the movement of people and the history of Europe. I'm Emmanuel Comte, and today we have a special guest, Ivan Kachanovsky, a political scientist who teaches at the University of Ottawa. Professor Kachanovsky is an expert on conflicts and democratization in Ukraine, especially the origins of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He has published four books and numerous articles on these topics. In this episode, we will talk about the largest movement of population in Europe since the end of the Second World War, the refugees in the, in the Ukraine war. According to the UNHCR, today more than 8 million refugees from Ukraine have been recorded across Europe. In addition, millions have been displaced within the country. We will discuss why so many Ukrainians have fled their country, where they have gone, what challenges they face, and what the policies of the major European actors about them are. We will also examine how this large movement of population has affected domestic politics and foreign relations. Ivan uh, Kachanovsky, thank you uh, very much for uh, joining us uh, today. Again, thank you for the invitation. This is a pleasure to talk to you about this uh, topic and a very important issue to discuss. So let's start. What, what made you interested in studying Ukraine's conflict and migration? Uh, so I think uh, this is uh, goes back to kind of my personal experience and family experience in Ukraine. Uh, my um, family, uh, my uh, mother lived in uh, four countries, four different countries without uh, moving on her own. And she was a refugee after World War II, basically and also as, as a result of ethnic cleansing. And uh, my grandmother, she uh, lived also in, uh, actually in five countries without uh, ever moving on her own. And she was also a refugee during World War One, uh, during World War Two. So I grew up with such experience. And for me, this was very important uh, during the Cold War, when I wanted to be a professor studying political science, even so it was not possible at that time, or very kind of almost impossible at that time. But um, after the Soviet Union collapse, I was able to get um, uh, into PhD program and, and uh, studied these issues. And I wrote my dissertation in the United States on this topic of regional political divisions and conflicts in Ukraine and Moldova, which, are, which is another post-Soviet country with similar regional conflicts and divisions that took place in Ukraine. And after the Ukraine became independent, all elections basically in Ukraine showed very strong regional divisions. And the question was why uh, why Ukraine was able to avoid such divisions and what was the reason for such regional divisions and separatism in Ukraine. Even at the time, in the 1990s, there was very strong separatism in Crimea, which is a Russian-populated uh, uh, region in south of Ukraine. And there was also separatism in Donbass area in eastern Ukraine. So this is why I decided to study this issue. I wrote my dissertation on this topic at George Mason University under the direction of Simon Martin Lipset, who was one of the most cited scholars in the world uh, in political science and sociology, political sociology. And I studied with Francis Fukuyama, who was also on my dissertation committee. And, and this issue, which I consider to be a crucial issue because uh, Ukraine was at the danger of facing similar war, a similar division, a similar breakup, which took place in neighboring Moldova in the 1990s, when a separatist region of Transnistria seceded from Moldova. 
with the Russian military support. And there were similar conflicts in Georgia, in um, Armenia, Azerbaijan. So this was a kind of very important issue to study. And I published book based on this uh, dissertation. And I continue to do research about these topics. And now I continue with research in um, war in, uh, in UK, which is, um, again, now would be one year since the Russian invasion. But before this, I also was researching uh, war in Donbass and Maidan and other cases of political violence, in addition to historical uh, conflicts like World War II, Soviet mass terror, and Oun and Upa. That's fascinating. And what is, your, uh, what is your methodology? How do you conduct research on those questions? I use the multiple methods of research, and I actually also teach research methods to my students, undergraduate students and graduate students, and I love teaching research methods, and I use them in my research myself, and a combination of different methods. I use uh, qualitative and quantitative methods. I use um, uh, like qualitative interviews, content analysis uh, of uh, different videos, for instance, watching all the videos from the, from the war uh, right now on social media, like hundreds of videos each day. And this is very important because there are primary sources to be able to analyze, look into content, not just just watching, but also analyzing them in terms of the content, what they show, what they don't show, and so on. Also, I use quantitative analysis, I use survey research, and, uh, and case study methods, and so and also comparative analysis, uh, which was uh, used in my uh, book, which uh, and dissertation when I compared UK and Moldova, regional divisions and conflicts. So this is kind of approach which uh, which relies on multiple methods of research and, and also primary data. So I think this is one of the key differences because a lot of people kind of, when they research conflict in Ukraine, they uh, do this based on media reports, based on secondary sources, basically. Uh, government um, reports, media reports and so on. But um, I am able to do this using original sources, and this is, I think, a very a primary sources. And this is very crucial difference because um, not many people uh, are able to do such research because it requires to know Ukrainian and Russian, which is another um, uh, language which is widely spoken in Ukraine, in particular in Eastern Ukraine. And uh, this is why I think um, uh, such research is very difficult. It's very time consuming to do. And, uh, but the results are often not what uh, people actually believe based on the media coverage because they, they kind of, uh, if, you, if, if you just follow media coverage, you have one basically country and one kind of conflict. But if you do uh, research based on primary sources, and you use different sources, not just one from one side. So the issue becomes much more complex and much more difficult to research, but also kind of. Um, uh, gives um, kind of evidence-based research, which is, I think, very important in this regard. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's now enter into into the meat of the of the subject matter. Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, and uh, other parts of Ukraine in uh, in February 2022, uh, exactly one year ago. Um, so, what are the causes of uh, this war? Uh, conflict started with um, event which took place exactly nine years ago in Ukraine, which was called Maidan Massacre, which was crucial uh, conflict, crucial case of political violence, in which um, which led to overthrow of the pro-Russian government in Ukraine, 
And um, after this, uh, there was uh, Russian retaliation and escalation of the conflict. Uh, and Russia annexed Crimea, which was a Russian region in uh, in the south of Ukraine. And after this, there was a start of civil war with separatists in uh, Donbass, which were uh, supported by Russia, firstly indirectly, and then with uh, direct military interventions by Russia in August of 2014 and um, winter 2015. And this war continued until the Russia invaded Ukraine in uh, February of 2022. And this uh, war now became a war between Russia and Ukraine. But this conflict goes back to uh, basically nine years ago, just to actual start of this conflict when uh, there was uh, Western actually supported a violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government. And this, uh, and Russia basically escalated this conflict very drastically by launching illegal invasion of Ukraine under false pretext of a genocide uh, of, of Russian speakers in Ukraine and claiming also firstly that there was, um, again, um, that Ukraine is not a state or neo-Nazi state, even so there is a very strong uh, far right in Ukraine. Um, but uh, Ukrainian government and Zelensky, they are not Nazis, they are not neo-Nazis, and the Ukrainian military, they are not Nazis or neo-Nazis, they are like units which are far right or even neo-Nazi-led like Azov, uh, regiment, but uh, this is not uh, entire Ukrainian military or Ukrainian government. And in this regard, again, and Russia also claimed that there was uh, um, a threat of Ukraine launching um, kind of um, military operation to take back control over Donbass, separatist control Donbass, but there is no such evidence that this was imminent uh, such operation, even so Zelensky uh, publicly stated that this was goal of his uh, government. So I think in this regard, this is like a very complex conflict, which goes back to kind of uh, basically nine years ago uh, as a result of Maidan massacre. And this uh, massacre, which was subject of my very extensive research, and I can say beyond any reasonable doubt now, it's possible to say um, that this massacre was conducted not by the forces of um, then government of Yanukovych, but by opposition, Maidan opposition, elements of Maidan opposition, specifically from oligarchic uh, factions and from uh, far-right uh, factions who actually uh, massacred both police and Maidan protesters in order to blame the government. And they were very successful in this case, uh, and this led to overthrow the Ukrainian government, but this had uh, basically very negative consequences for Ukraine because now Ukraine faces uh, kind of this is a result of such decisions, such actions. And uh, this is supported by evidence, overwhelming evidence, even from the Maidan massacre trial. There are like videos uh, of such snipers, which I also published, made public based on my research. There are testimonies by um, absolute majority of wounded Maidan protesters at the Maidan massacre trial and investigation in UK, which I also analyzed. There are testimonies by several hundred eyewitnesses about uh, such snipers and such massacre. And um, there are even forensic uh, examination results by government experts, which were conducted for Ukrainian government investigation. But um, all, almost everything which, uh, which is publicly available is not reported by the media. So this is another issue because people kind of, when they, um, when they learn about Ukraine, they often have a message, an image of Ukraine, which is not based on reality, but based on kind of image. Um, which is given by the media, but uh, media is not reliable. So, in this regard. So, yeah, um, I, I am, uh, of course, le less familiar than you. So, about this um, 
these uh, paramilitary groups that uh, that use snipers. So they played a role in the overthrow of the pro-Russian government, correct? Yes, they, they did. Basically, they um, basically committed a massacre, mass killing of um, not only them. There were different groups of snipers. Some of them were linked to far right organizations like Red Sector and Soboda. And they were based in uh, metal control buildings like Hotel Ukraina, which was uh, controlled by a far right party, which called Soboda. And they officially announced this on their uh, on their website. In, on their, um, kind of in the media, that before the massacre, they took control over this hotel. And basically, snipers in these locations, in these buildings, they shot both at the police and the protesters, Maidan protesters, who did not expect this. But uh, police and uh, government snipers were blamed for this massacre. So this was specifically to blame the government. But uh, in this uh, massacre, in order to overthrow the government, kind of win such conflict, even so, all the evidence shows that this was done by uh, by opposition elements, specifically from Hotel Ukraina, which was controlled by Svoboda, including by Farai. So this was not, there is no evidence at all during the Maidan massacre trial, uh, reliable evidence of any order to massacre Maidan protesters by Yanukovych, any confessions or admissions by snipers in contrast to uh, admissions by 14 Maidan snipers who admitted publicly that um, involvement in such massacre of the police and protesters. And uh, there are also kind of no videos which show that uh, that government forces massacred Maidan protesters. Even so, they used all the videos, but videos were shown only kind of very small fragments of videos in which police were shooting, uh, like police were shooting and then protesters killed. But if you compare them, if you do a kind of content analysis of these videos, which I did, and synchronize them, it's possible to see immediately that when uh, police were shooting, uh, the uh, protesters were not killed. So, and uh, when uh, police were, was not shooting, the police, uh, protesters were killed. So this means there were other snipers who were killing um, uh, protesters, and the police were shooting into snipers, and they were shooting also into kind of uh, uh, poles and ground and so on. Uh, they were not killing Maidan protesters. This is, I think, a very crucial issue, and this is what was presented by the media. Mm-hmm. And what was uh, the origin of of uh, these para, para, paramilitary groups, and what was the agenda? I, I mean, in the origin, I mean, what was the composition? What was uh, how were they funded? Uh, what was the organization, and what was the agenda? Uh, there are different, uh, like paramilitary and far right groups. Uh, uh, they included a uh, right sector, which was basically organization which goes back to. Uh, organization called Trident, named after Stepan Mandera, and this organization considered to be successor of far-right organization called Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, uh, which uh, Stepan Mandera faction, which was um, uh, um, kind of um, uh, organization which uh, collaborated with Nazi Germany uh, during World War II, in particular at the beginning of World War II and at the end of World War II, and which was uh, which was involved in uh, mass uh, mass murder of Jews, uh, Poles, and Ukrainians during World War II, specifically kind of, uh, as a part of uh, uh, local police, for instance, they organized local police during German occupation, 
of of Ukraine, and also they were involved in the creation of Ukrainian insurgent army, which massacred Poles in Volhynia, my native region in western Ukraine, and uh, they also committed terrorism and so on. And they um and their organization, right sector, became their successors, and actually they adopted this uh, slogan um, uh, of Oun uh, and Upa, which was called Glory to Ukraine or Slava Ukraini and Glory to the Heroes. And this is actually a slogan and greeting which was adopted first by the Oun um, based on uh, Nazi uh, kind of greeting and similar other greetings of similar other parties along with Nazis kind of fascist style hand salute. Which was kind of, and this was actually became popular and adopted by Maidan during the Maidan protests from far right organizations like the right sector. And now it became kind of a mainstream greeting, which is used even by Western politicians who basically have no idea about its origin or kind of claim this is like old Ukrainian greeting, which is not the case. So this is just one example. There was another organization called Svoboda. And Svoboda was originally a far-right party, which was a neo-Nazi party um, called uh, Social National Party, uh, and uh, named after basically kind of uh, National, so National Socialist Party of, uh, of Nazi Germany, Nazi party, and they uh, changed their kind of ideology into more moderate after they entered in mainstream of Ukrainian politics uh, shortly before Maidan and during the Maidan. So they became just a typical far-right party, um, and uh, they were also involved in this Maidan massacre. In addition to this, there was neo-Nazi uh, party, which was called uh, Patriot of Ukraine, and Social National Assembly, which became um, was also involved in Maidan massacre. They were part of the right sector during the Maidan, and after the Maidan, they organized Azov Battalion, which became Azov Regiment, which goes back to kind of uh, to this party, which was openly neo-Nazi party. And which use neo-Nazi symbols, kind of, and now they try to again present them as uh, again as part of mainstream and deny you know, any uh, like far-right ideology and so on. Even so, this was explicitly uh, uh, kind of stated. They use uh, neo-Nazi symbols and ideology and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, okay, I, I understand that those uh, group uh, perpetrated some violence in the middle of the Maidan protestations and that this helped with the intention to have the police also um, uh, to have the police accused of, of this violence in order to to intensify intensify the, the revolution. But uh, let's also uh, maybe put things into perspective uh, a little bit like uh, Russian dolls, if we can uh, use this expression here, that um, often we, in the outbreak of a conflict, there are various dimensions of causes. So the, the, the Maidan uh, protestation uh, was uh, meant about uh, to protest about the suspension of the talks uh, between Ukraine and the European Union for uh, a trade agreement and a closer association between uh, between Ukraine and um, and 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 the European Union. So, I think th this aspect is quite interesting because it's. Um, 
you it's not simply the relationship between Ukraine and Russia that can explain the, the, the war or even the domestic politics within Ukraine, even though all these uh, dimensions are also relevant. But there is also a kind of very big magnetic attraction uh, west, which is uh, the European Union. And this is this big magnetic attraction that... Uh, that uh, triggered massive protestation in uh, in Ukraine against uh, the government of the pro-Russian government of Viktor Yanukovych, and this this magnetic attraction uh, did you did you feel it in the country? Was there an appetite for the West uh, West uh, as, as a direction rather than as a geopolitical concept? That is, uh, was there an appetite? To join the European Union in in uh, in uh, in Ukraine, and what were the what were the motivations of people? So actually, before uh, during Maidan, uh, Ukraine was split on joining the European Union and joining the Russian-led uh, economic union. There was uh, absolute majority support for joining the European Union in uh, east in Western Ukraine and in the Central Ukraine, including the capital of Ukraine, Kiev. But in uh, regions of south and, and east of Ukraine, there was support for joining uh, economic union with Russia. So this was split, and even during the Maidan, there was about 50-50 split between supporters of Maidan or Euromaidan and opposition uh, to Euromaidan. And the uh, and the uh, opposition, Maidan opposition, they used uh, this uh, refusal by or, or kind of reversal by Yanukovych of signing free uh, trade and association agreement with the European Union. In order to kind of um, launch a mass protest against his government and eventually to overthrow his government, and they basically presented this agreement as a, basically as a European Union membership of Ukraine. So a lot of people believed that Ukraine would join European Union. Uh, that this was not just an association agreement or a free trade agreement. This was actually about Ukraine joining European Union. Uh, which was not the case, but this was uh, represented. And that's why a lot of people supported this because they actually believed that this would be a uh, European Union membership. And uh, in my own research, I and in my own publications, popular media publications, since um, more than 30 years ago, I argued that for Ukraine to avoid such conflict, basically to avoid breakup, to become a democracy, the only chance to do this would be to join the European Union. But actually, during the Maidan, this was not the case because the European Union at the time, when they discussed this agreement, they refused specifically even to mention a possibility that Ukraine would become a member of the European Union in the, in the future. So this was, I think, a very important decision. And this decision had a very significant consequence because uh, it was possible to avoid the war in Ukraine and all the kind of conflicts by basically uh, giving Ukraine a possibility to join the European Union, which would, would have, I think, then support even in eastern Ukraine or uh, southern Ukraine, because Russia at the time did not oppose such a membership. They opposed uh, association and free uh, trade agreement for economic reasons, but I think they, they would have accepted European Union membership for Ukraine, and this was in contrast to NATO, and this was a kind of missed opportunity. But opposition used this specifically to rally support for, for Ukraine, and um, a lot of people believe that uh, European Union would be kind of immediate. Even um, many scholars who study Ukraine, even after Maidan, they believe that Ukraine would join the European Union. Even so, I wrote an article on this topic, which I said this is like um, unlikely, even kind of 
looking into past experience, similar countries like Balkans and so on, this would not be very likely because at the time even European Union did not offer any even possibility of UK becoming a member of European Union. And this recently changed during the Russia uh, after the Russian invasion of UK. But again, I think this would if UK would become a member of European Union, it would take a lot a long time. To do this, it will not be very, just next year or a few years. It might take like 20 years or like 15 years or maybe 10 years at the best, unless something change kind of significantly. And among the among the uh, followers of Maidan, uh, what was the most what was the thing the most appealing in the European Union? What did the prospect of uh, capital investment in the country, the prospect of exports to the EU, or was it the prospect of people having the right to move west toward the EU? There has been a large increase in emigration to Europe, in Ukraine, even before Maidan uh, in the last decade. Yeah, I think the most important appeal of the European Union for, for, Ukraine, for Ukrainians is that at the time, was uh, like a belief that UK would immediately would enjoy a similar standard of living as in European Union. So this was kind of uh, expectation of paradise, and this was promoted by opposition leaders specifically to get support from for Maidan. They show advertisement, basically showing Ukrainians uh, like um, going to vacation in Paris, basically uh, enjoying coffee like Vienna or something like this, which was <laughs> kind of. Um, very nice and, and getting jobs like um, standards of kind of Western Europe, uh, like England, like United Kingdom, Germany, like uh, France, and so on, uh, Austria, without actually kind of uh, doing much. And this was a kind of expectation that you can would, uh, would, would have such opportunity. And a lot of people also believe that they would be able to move to European Union to find uh, jobs. Uh, and uh, they would be able to get a lot of money, become rich, and this and this was a kind of expectation. Again, even so, such agreement did not include such possibility of uh, UK um, getting um, again a, a movement uh, job, basically uh, ability to for UK to get the jobs in the European Union. But a lot of people believe this at the time, and this was specifically promoted by the opposition in order to get support for for their um, mass protest during Maidan. Yeah, that, that's very interesting because, uh, as you know uh, very well, the, the debate about the, the origins of the war in, in Ukraine has been very much focused on uh, NATO and the uh, enlargements of NATO. There has been a, a lively debate in the last years uh, about this issue, and there is a recent book by uh, Mary Sarotti, uh, Not One Inch, uh, trying to, to, to analyze how NATO ended up moving, moving uh, east. And uh, this is often presented as a major reason why the war in Ukraine broke out. But as you, as you tell us, and as I, I have also written myself, uh, the it has more to do uh, with the European Union in itself than than with uh, with NATO. That is, people were uh, contemplating a higher standard of living, um, contemplating uh, opportunity, job opportunities, travel opportunities, immigration towards uh, Germany, Austria, France, the UK. Uh, and all this was made possible by uh, by the European Union. So uh, Ukraine is uh, a like it's like uh, 
uh, a piece that is between two big magnets. Uh, one magnet is the EU and the other magnet is Russia. And this piece in the middle is torn apart and we don't know in which direction it's going to go until a point where uh, the, pressure, the internal pressure becomes so strong that the country just falls apart and uh, probably the, 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 the various groups you have mentioned uh, could, uh, could have uh, played a role. Do you think that when the revolution... If I can, if I can yeah. add to this NATO issue, uh, because NATO also important issue. This was European Union was a kind of issue was extended to Ukrainians in order to get support from Maidan and for political opposition at the time. But NATO was also important issue because uh, Western countries, including the United States and NATO members, in, in particular also countries like in European Union, like France, Germany, the United Kingdom at the time, they supported this violent overthrow of, of the Ukrainian government during Maidan. De facto, by by means of the Maidan massacre, specifically not to support democracy, not to support uh, any kind of European Union membership for Ukraine, but in order to contain Russia. So th that's why Ukraine was very important, uh, and uh, this is kind of shows that support from the West, uh, even starting with the Maidan, was motivated by uh, not kind of by giving Ukrainians any kind of um, making Ukrainians uh, or Ukrainians uh, country similar to kind of. Other countries which were very successful in joining the European Union, like Poland, uh, Czech Republic, or Slovakia, or Hungary, and even Romania and Bulgaria, but making Ukraine, uh, using Ukraine as a, a tool to contain Russia. And this was very different because uh, kind of the only possibility to avoid this was making Ukraine the European Union, but actually Western countries used uh, this uh, kind of Maidan opposition and at the time to overthrow the government, specifically for geopolitical reasons, for military purposes, in order to use Ukraine uh, to contain Russia. And this is actually was kind of still ongoing with uh, kind of uh, this war in Ukraine now, because this war also became a proxy war between uh, the West and Russia over Ukraine. Absolutely. Yeah. And what kind of role concretely do you think Western powers play at the time of the overthrow of the uh, pro-Russian government in Ukraine in 2014? I think this is again um, a lot of documents and a lot of data are not yet public, but uh, based on um, evidence which is available, I can say that um, they at least de facto supported this overthrow. And uh, there, are, there are like um, interviews by two leaders of uh, former kind of uh, two leaders of Maidan opposition uh, from Svoboda Party, which is far right party, and uh, they uh, they told Ukrainian uh, journalists who were pro Maidan journalists. Uh, after Maidan, that they met with a representative from the Western uh, countries. Uh, some Western representatives, they do not name country, they do not name the name of this person, but they said that they, they had discussion before Maidan massacre, they, they had discussion. What would it take for Western governments to change uh, its position, to change their position towards the Yanukovych government, to stop recognition of the Yanukovych government and basically and, uh, um, kind of renounce Yanukovych government, or, and, uh, and this um, discussions basically involved uh, as a kind of uh, talks how many people would need to be killed uh, during Maidan for Western government to, to change their policy of recognition of Yanukovych government. And they had discussion like five. Uh, they said like five, or ten, twenty. Uh, Western representatives said not enough. This would be the policy of Western governments, which only change if there would be 100 um, victims during the Maidan. And this is kind of just uh, remarkable because as soon as the Maidan 
massacre took place. Uh, Maidan opposition immediately proclaimed Heavenly uh, Hundred. Basically, Heavenly Hundred of Maidan protesters killed. Even so, there was not a uh, number of actually killed Maidan protesters was, was slightly less. Uh, they included people who were just um, you know, uh, committed suicide or di died from uh, like other diseases. They were not even were on Maidan or just killed in um, kind of in um, kind of in other ways in other locations specifically to have to create this heavily uh, 100 along with protesters who, who were killed during the Maidan massacre. And this is just uh, I think this is one evidence which um, kind of which is uh, kind of shows that Western countries. Uh, play a certain kind of role in this regard, but there is no evidence that they were involved directly in the Maidan massacre. But they basically give such a kind of uh, uh, incentive to massacre Maidan protesters, specifically 100, uh, which exactly what happened. Because after Maidan massacre, without any investigation, Western government specifically recognized the new government of Ukraine. Even so, they uh, signed agreement, uh, peace agreement. Which um, promised to hold, to hold elections and to investigate Maidan massacre. This immediately was renounced by the Western governments, and uh, now they recognize new government and they uh, kind of became silent about Maidan massacre investigation. And uh, uh, even so, they talk about uh, victims and so on. They remember Maidan protesters, but they 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 not there is no pressure or any interest in investigating Maidan massacre because nobody uh, is actually since nine years after Maidan massacre, not, there is not one person who was convicted for this massacre or is currently under arrest. So basically nobody has any kind of consequences for this Maidan massacre in terms of justice, but um, but consequences for Ukraine were very significant. And I think Biden at the time was vice president of the of, uh, United States, and he says in his memoirs that he called Yanukovych uh, right after Maidan massacre took place and told Yanukovych to uh, not only to leave uh, his position, as a president of Ukraine, but basically to leave Ukraine at all. And this is what happened. Uh, Yanukovych was removed as a result of this massacre because he was blamed for the Maidan massacre. And there were also assassination attempts against him, according to evidence presented uh, during uh, uh, trials in Ukraine. Uh, this is uh, just, I think, kind of, I think this was a policy by, by the Western governments, but what exactly they did and what exactly they know, I think this will be a very crucial issue when uh, documents would become open and uh, available. But I think that West, Western governments know this this happened, but uh, obviously they and, uh, they know much more about what actually happened during Maidan, but obviously for political reasons, this is not uh, discussed and not um, revealed, uh, similarly to what, for instance, happened in other cases. <laughs> so at least the Western governments were prompt to recognize uh, an alternative government in in Ukraine, uh, when when there was a revolution, they would not stick uh, long with the Prussian uh, government of um, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, so, um, but this is again is is coherent with uh, this intermediary uh, zone, Ukraine as an intermediary uh, country between the West and Russia. And uh, and uh, and the, the difficulty of borders in in this area. There are no clear borders, and each side is trying to 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 get a little bit further in order to feel safer. That's that's the the, the long history of this region of of Europe. Um, 
between uh, competing, uh, competing influences. But we, we have already started to talk about uh, the movement of people, that is the, the prospect of moving west was something at least important in the uh, in the uh, the motivations of the maiden protesters. And then if we fast forward to 2022, when the war started, it became uh, quite fast uh, a major uh, conflict in terms of displacements of population. Uh, today, we are at 8 million people outside of Ukrainian borders in Europe. Uh, many millions as well have been uh, displaced within the country. So. Why why did this war take this form? Why did this war displace so many people? I think this is because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was not only limited to eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine, but also to Kyiv region and northern Ukraine. So this a lot of people fled immediately after the Russian invasion of Ukraine because they believe this was a real danger. And said to basically become in the middle of war zone. So this is like a real issue, and this is kind of as a result of such a Russian invasion. So this was main uh, reason, the main factor, because kind of, of in order to avoid consequences, uh, direct consequences of this war, or indirect consequences like uh, losing, um, for instance, uh, jobs, or losing kind of uh, their homes, or losing uh, like kind of um, their kind of electricity and so on, and, uh, and uh, ability to travel, and so on. These were very important issues. And uh, But a lot of people also moved, not only because of political reasons, but also because of economic reasons, because this uh, war opened, kind of um, opportunity to move to the West and to more prosperous countries and to try to find jobs there or to kind of improve their standard of living, um, and this is in uh, uh, most people who were in particular from Western Ukraine, which was not directly involved in the war, but I know that a lot of people from Western Ukraine also moved to, to the Western Europe, for instance, and to Poland in order to kind of uh, get basically better prospect, economic prospect, jobs, and security, and so on, and opportunity to stay for a long time there, or even permanently, and this is applies the same to Canada. Uh, there are a lot of people, for instance, in Canada, they created a program called um, Specific Visa uh, program, which uh, gave Ukrainians opportunity to find jobs in Canada uh, after the Russian invasion. And this uh, this opportunity basically kind of applied to Ukrainians from any country of the world. You need to be a Ukrainian citizen, and it was not limited to Ukraine. And for this reason, many Ukrainians um, from uh, countries like Poland or even Western Europe, like Germany, or Spain and Italy, they moved to Canada because uh, for economic reasons, because Canadian government gave uh, economic support, they, they pay money, they give a, a work permit to, to, to work in Canada, and this possibility of getting permanent residence in Canada. So a lot of people use this opportunity to move to Canada, in addition to many people who actually also were genuine like uh, refugees from this war, even so they are not recognized as refugees according to this program, but they actually were affected by this war. But many of them actually, uh, kind of, uh, they also moved to Russia. And this is another issue because, which is not often discussed by the media. According to the United Nations data on refugees, um, there were uh, like more than 8 million refugees registered by the United Nations, and about 3 million of them were in Russia. So this is 
and uh, in, I think more than one and a half million in Poland and about one million in uh, in Germany. So this is just kind of approximate uh, division. And uh, so this means a lot of refugees also, uh, specifically from Donbass, came to Russia. Um, and uh, this another kind of illustration of this division in Ukraine, which is still significant in this regard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as uh, the, the conflict was triggered to some extent by the willingness to move, and once the conflict started, uh, people did move. Um, so for for pull and push reasons, as uh, is common to say in, in migration studies, that is the, the push reasons were that the, the war uh, uh, made people afraid for security, but also disrupted the Ukrainian uh, economy and, and just distorted economic opportunities for people there. And um, and the poor reasons, I believe, that is that uh, both Western countries and perhaps also uh, Russia were more willing to to take on more people as there was a war raging in Ukraine, and they, and they considered that uh, the uh, being open to those people was part and parcel of uh, supporting one side in the conflict. Correct. Uh, yes, I think this um, also kind of uh, Western governments, European Union member countries open their borders basically to Ukrainians, and a lot of Ukrainians use this opportunity. But there was one exception, one category was not allowed to exit Ukraine. This applies to me Ukrainian men of, uh, of fighting age, I think from 18 years of age until uh, 60 years old. So this means Ukrainian citizens could not exit Ukraine uh, because they were prevented from doing this with very small number of exceptions, like um, people who are disabled and, and so on. So this means that a lot of men were not able to leave Ukraine, and this also this means there is a very significant gender disbalance, and a lot of immigrants, or kind of actually migrants and refugees from Ukraine are now um, basically female uh, women uh, with children, and this is uh, another kind of dimension which is very important because a lot of families are split. And um, because husbands and, and, and their sons not able to leave UK, and this is a kind of issue which would have also basically an effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. So um, men in age of fighting or able of fighting were prevented from leaving the country by uh, by the Ukrainian uh, the Ukrainian military. But about uh, about the push factor about what let people to move. Uh, do you think that uh, this became quite rapidly a dirty war? So, so what, what do you mean? That is a, a war in which both sides uh, take actions against civilians, or at least the Russian side. Because this is typical also of wars that involves the population. And here, as you were saying, the country was split uh, almost 50-50 between the pro-Western side and the pro-Russian side. And so it's a war in which the, the population was part and parcel. It's not a war between militaries or simply between governments. It's a war of, of, of the bottom as well, because the population was, uh, was um, organized in opposing camps and therefore um, and therefore the Russians may have wanted to terrorize the population to have some pro-western supporters uh, leave 
deliberately for, from certain areas. Do you think this played a role in this very big number of uh, immigrants and displaced persons? I think this may only apply to area of Kyiv, of Kyiv area, which was like pro Western in terms of its orientation. The capital of Ukraine and a lot of people in Kyiv were also from Western Ukraine, but Kyiv was not um, captured by Russians. And there was no evidence that they wanted to capture Kyiv. I think they wanted to uh, threaten Kyiv with encirclement at the start of the war, specifically to force um, a regime change in Ukraine from a pro Western into pro Russian government. From a client state, uh, from a Western client state to a client state uh, which would become client state of Russia, but this failed, and then they wanted also to basically to force Zelensky to accept their demands, uh, like become a neutral country and uh, demilitarize and so on. These were demands kind of often uh, given by Putin, and there, there was a real possibility that Zelensky would agree to such demands. Uh, and there were negotiations involving um, Prime Minister of Israel, and he recently confirmed uh, Ukrainian media reports and other sources that the, such agreement was very close to, to being accepted, or there was a real possibility of such agreement, but because of Western countries, in particular the United Kingdom and the United States opposed this, this agreement was not uh, signed by uh, by uh, by um, uh, by Zelensky. And after this, there was um, kind of um, uh, finding of um, evidence against uh, civilians in Bucha and so on. So according to my uh, kind of uh, research, academic uh, research, including this um, uh, study which I presented at the annual meeting of American Political Science Association in Montreal, there is um, no evidence of uh, any genocide. Uh, so there is no genocide of Ukraine, uh, contrary to claims by Putin and the Russian government, which used to justify this invasion of Ukraine, claiming that there was a genocide of Russian speakers. There is no such evidence of genocide of Russian speakers in Ukraine, but also there is no evidence to support the claim that there is a genocide of Ukrainians committed by Russian forces. But there is evidence of war crimes committed, in particular against civilians, and most war crimes, according to my research and evidence, uh, from various sources, uh, was committed by Russian uh, forces, in particular during the occupation of um, of Ukrainian regions, in particular Kyiv region, like in Bucha. Um, there was evidence that uh, Russian uh, Russian military forces units or individual soldiers killed uh, uh, several dozen of Ukrainian civilians in Bucha and members of uh, civil uh, kind of territorial defense uh, in Bucha during the occupation. So there is such evidence, but there is no evidence that this was a part of genocide or, or any kind of deliberate um, kind of targeting of civilians. And the same applies to other kind of cases of uh, when a lot of civilians were killed, uh, like during uh, missile strikes by Russia and so on. I look into all these cases and um, all the evidence suggests that uh, basically this were kind of use of uh, uh, basically use of uh, of uh, of of um, their kind of uh, missiles aim at um, kind of military targets, but this they missed this, and so this was what would be an example of indiscriminate use of military force, because in some cases this were dual use uh, targets, or they were in the middle of cities and so on, and uh, and uh, a lot of civilians died or were killed during such missile strikes. So there is no evidence of a deliberate kind of extermination or genocide of Ukrainians by Russian forces or by Ukrainian forces, but there is evidence of uh, use of indiscriminate kind of uh, killing and indiscriminate force, in particular like artillery, artillery kind of missiles and so on against um, 
you know, uh, in cities or other locations, and primarily by Russian forces. And there was also evidence of um, of uh, execution of prisoners of war, particularly Russian prisoners of war by Ukrainian forces, and also killing of civilians in Mariupol, in eastern Ukraine, by a far-right neo-Nazi Azov-led battalion or regiment. But uh, this, again, you know, uh, would not constitute a genocide. And I think uh, in the regard of division of Ukraine, I think also this is very important because most of conflict and most of the casualties take place in in uh, kind of in regions which were like Donbass, which are pro-Russian regions. Uh, Mariupol, uh, this was a relative pro-Russian region, um, according to survey research which I conducted uh, after Maidan. And so this uh, Donbass was most pro-Russian region in Ukraine after Crimea. And uh, other regions of Ukraine were also like Russian, relatively Russian, like Kherson and Zaporizhia and Kharkiv region, which were occupied by uh, by Russian forces. But they were not. But by Russian, it does not mean that they supported a Russian uh, kind of annexation of these territories, or they they supported a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Because there is big difference of basically of time uh, of supporting integration with Russia, or economic uh, union with Russia. And supporting a kind of a secession of uh, these regions and joining Russia or annexation by Russia. According to public opinion poll, which I conducted, uh, which was commissioned, um, which I commissioned and conducted by U uh, Ukrainian Institute uh, in 2014 after Maidan, the only region which which had majority support for separatists was in Donbass. So Donbass was the only region in which uh, basically most people would support Russian annexation and uh, and joining Russia. When entirely in all other regions, including the Russian regions like Kherson, the Parisia, and Kharkiv region, uh, support for uh, for joining Russia was uh, was um, marginal. So this is, I think, very important because now after Russian invasion, this support even decreased much more significantly because a lot of people, even so they were like initially pro-Russian, they supported uh, like economic ties to Russia and so on, and, and cultural ties and personal ties to Russia. They after Russian invasion, they became kind of more anti-Russian or kind of well, but definitely, most of them did not support uh, Russian invasion and annexation of, uh, Russia, of uh, their territories by Russia. So you you don't think that uh, one side or the other tried deliberately to to move people away, to get rid of some kinds of people broadly defined. Uh, no, there is also no evidence of ethnic cleansing, uh, like uh, what was took place, for instance, during um, wars in uh, Bosnia and, and uh, in Kosovo. There was uh -huh. no such evidence in the case of Ukraine, no ethnic cleansing evidence. And according to United Nations estimate um, a report for uh, casualties, civilian casualties, there was, I think, uh, at least now they reported, I think, about 9,000 civilians who were identified as killed in, in Ukraine. Uh, confirmed killed in Ukraine. So this uh, would exclude 2,000 casualties in Mariupol, but the number would be still like about 12,000 civilians killed during this war, which would be much smaller compared to military casualties, which would be, in case of Ukrainian forces, now more than 30,000 killed, and, uh, and Russian forces, according to BBC, now they confirm about 14,000 Russian military forces killed in Ukraine. And in addition to this, there were like uh, approximately seven or at least 7,000 uh, separatist forces in Donbass, from Donbass republics uh, killed in Ukraine. So this is a kind of a conflict in which mostly casualties are not civilians, but uh, military casualties. And this is different from, for instance, war in Bosnia, when uh, there was actually massacre in Srebrenica and a lot of ethnic cleansing. 
and most casualties were actually civilians, not military. In case of war in Ukraine, this is a reverse, I think. And this is one aspect which is also not can often misrepresented by the media and by the politicians for political purposes, by, but based on the research, based on the evidence, I think this is kind of, uh, there is no kind of evidence of any genocide or any kind of um, ethnic cleansing or deliberate targeting civilians as a part of policy. But there are obviously war crimes in, in Bucha, like there is clear like evidence, uh, a lot of evidence that Russian forces killed uh, civilians, like few, like at least few dozen or several dozen civilians were killed, um, either kind of as a result of um, uh, some of the executions, uh, and uh, in addition also not civilians, but also uh, territorial defense members, they were uh, executed by Russian forces or uh, also killed, for uh, instance, indiscriminately, um, kind of uh, when they tried to approach Russian forces or were around it as suspected, uh, kind of, for suspected helps to Ukrainian uh, military forces. And this is kind of just um, one example, but there is no such evidence that this was systematic policy applied to, uh, to other regions of Ukraine. And according to United Nations data, Almost all casualties, I think, um, I think more, more than 90, uh, 90, I don't remember exactly, but more than 90 percent definitely were casualties as a result of um, use of um, wide area kind of uh, weapons with wide area impact, like artillery, missiles, and so on, and not uh, kind of uh, not by uh, bullets. So casualties by bullets were uh, small, just few percent of overall casualties in uh, Ukraine among civilians. Mm -hmm. And in this conflict, some many many people have left, but some people also have gone to uh, to, to Ukraine and in particular to to Crimea. There have been uh, indications uh, that Russia has been moving people to Crimea uh, precisely to 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 repopulate this country with loyal uh, with loyal people. What is your take on this uh, on this issue? No, I think there's evidence that Russia, you know, uh, there's a lot of refugees from from uh, Ukraine into Russia who went voluntarily. Most of them went voluntarily, but there was also evidence that Russia basically tried to kind of force people, some some people, to move into Russia. In particular, for instance, during uh, a siege of Mariupol, they Russia uh, Russian forces told people that they can move out of Mariupol, but they only gave exit to Russia towards Russia, not to. Uh, uh, Ukrainian control uh, territory, and so this means a lot of, there were people who were kind of basically forced to or have no choice and moved to Russia, but it's not possible, I think, to for them to stay for very long time. They had the opportunity to leave Russia afterwards for a long time and move to Western Europe, with other countries like Baltic states, or, uh, without actually kind of uh, being, being uh, forced to stay there. There were also children who were removed um, to Russia, but they, most of them are orphanage, uh, people without uh, orphanage, in orphanages. So they were kind of removed to Russia from, from Donbass and from other regions of Ukraine, which were occupied by Russia. And uh, in addition to this, I think in Crimea, uh, Crimea is uh, not um, kind of a region in which most of refugees went, because Crimea is uh, kind of, in Ukraine, was always kind of region which was, which was um, kind of, very kind of a popular and very desirable region because this is uh, this is basically like a Mediterranean Mediterranean climate, climate like um, basically for this um, kind of um, this south of France or Italy like south of Italy or like south of, or like Greece basically you have climate 
which is a kind of very warm and very kind of nice climate, sea and so on. So this was a very expensive place to live in, and a lot of people, politicians and government officials had their duchess, basically their apartments in this area of Ukraine and Crimea. And there was also immigration of Crimean Tatars after Ukraine independence, because they were expelled from, from Crimea after World War II by Stalin. So a lot of them returned to Crimea. And so as a result of this Russian invasion, there were some people who moved to Crimea from from uh, areas occupied by Russia, but this um, this is not a mass, uh, most uh, kind of um, uh, most um, kind of um, populated region of, uh, of, uh, of which became kind of a center for refugees, because a lot of refugees moved to other areas controlled by Russia, uh, in uh, places in Donbass or in the south of um, Kherson region, or they were uh, settled in other regions of uh, of Russia, including some in Siberia. But a lot of moved to other regions, like neighboring regions, like Kuban or Rostov region, or Belgrade region. After the push, as it is what pushes people to to leave, we we mentioned also the pool that is what what attracts people. So of course, some people have been attracted by uh, better opportunities in Western countries, but uh, government policies have also played a role. So you just you have just mentioned that Russia authorized. Uh, migrants from Mariupol to leave Ukraine, but only to go to Russia itself. Other countries like uh, Poland um, and uh, Germany have been uh, have been rather welcoming, especially if we can if we compare um, their policies with uh, their policies towards other migrants from outside Europe over the last years. How do you explain that on both sides uh, there have been a willingness to take to take people? Was it simply for humanitarian reasons, or were there also were there also geopolitical reasons in this openness? I think there were clear geopolitical reasons in addition to humanitarian reasons and humanitarian support from the Western countries, including European Union countries to Ukraine, which was very significant during this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was clear geopolitical reason because um, Ukraine is used as a proxy by the West uh, to contain Russia, to weaken Russia. So this is in addition to war between Russia and Ukraine taking place right now, which is inter-state war between Russia and Ukraine. There is also a civil war, which I mentioned. They mentioned which is still ongoing, kind of um, because a lot of fighters are from separatist Donbass and also from Crimea, which are next by Russia. But in addition to this, there is also proxy war between West and uh, or NATO. And, uh, and Russia in Ukraine, because Western countries, NATO members, including European Union members, they use Ukraine as a proxy to kind of contain Russia, to weaken Russia, and this is uh, would explain their support for Ukrainian refugees and humanitarian support, kind of in order to alleviate a kind of effect of this war in on Ukraine. And this is kind of I think a very important issue and very important dimension, which also explains U.S. policy and, and policies of countries like Canada. Even so, this is uh, not publicly acknowledged often by politicians, but uh, some of them publicly stated this, including U.S. Minister of Defense, Pentagon chief, publicly stated basically that the goal of the United States is to weaken Russia. And this is uh, even today visit by Joe Biden to Kyiv. You can, it's just a illustration of this. So he basically went there as a boss, basically to show that he's kind of he's basically who makes decision about war and peace in Ukraine, and not Zelensky, actually. Zelensky is um, actually, um, and this is based on my research and a lot of evidence, that uh, since Maidan, Ukraine became a client state of the United States, 
And a lot of key decisions, like uh, including during war in the bus, are made by the United States and not by the Italian government. Specifically, after war, after Maidan, uh, the U.S. government uh, told um, new Ukrainian government not to resist Russian annexation of Crimea militarily. And this is what happened. Basically, uh, Russia was able to annex Crimea without any kind of military uh, fighting, without any kind of violent conflict. And this is uh, one example. But after another example that. There was uh, during uh, uh, Russian invasion, few weeks after Russian invasion, there was possibility of peaceful agreement, but um, uh, United States and, and United Kingdom blocked this peaceful agreement because they wanted to use this as proxy war and weaken Russia. And this is was support, uh, this was reported by Ukrainian media in uh, May, uh, citing um, sources close to Zelensky. And recently, uh, Israeli Prime Minister confirmed this. He was uh, the one who was leading such negotiations, and he confirmed there was a real possibility of peace deal, but the um, um, United States and the United Kingdom basically blocked this agreement, uh, possibility of such agreement. And uh, and uh, now, uh, I think uh, there was, before Biden's visit to UK, uh, US administration um, stated uh, uh, to US media, political, that the uh, United States asked, uh, called um, Zelensky to launch counteroffensive now. So basically, uh, this is an, uh, there is a lot of evidence that the United States military also involved in provision of intelligence, like battlefield intelligence, like in targets, approving targets, providing information about location of Russian military forces, about their plans, and so on. And, so, and also giving instructions and even uh, kind of uh, leading operations to. Uh, to check back, for instance, uh, the not the Persia but Kharkiv region, part of occupied by Russia, was a military operation which was planned by Western military kind of advisors uh, or kind of military leaders or commanders, not by Ukrainian forces. And this is just one example. So now Ukraine basically is client state in, in which you, uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians are used by by the West to achieve their goals. And I think uh, kind of a lot of humanitarian assistance, in, uh, not just because of political. Uh, even so, this is uh, just uh, explained by supporting Ukraine, but actually this is, has a very negative effect because Ukrainians have to die, and, and the consequences for Ukraine are just terrible, and, and the amount of aid will not be able to compensate all the losses in terms of life. A very large number of Ukrainians killed, specifically immunity, a lot of destruction, and uh, in terms of economic future, now it's very d difficult to predict what would happen. And I think a lot of people who move out of Ukraine would not return back. I think they would stay or would like to stay in Western Europe or countries like Poland or even countries like Canada. And I think this is another issue. So now I think I'm quite pessimistic about future of Ukraine for this reason, because of this kind of conflict and its nature. And outcome is, uh, I think, would be very negative for Ukraine in terms of long run impact. But how how does the openness to immigrants from Ukraine concretely help the Ukrainian side in this conflict? You mentioned that it's the Ukrainian military forbids to men in fighting age to uh, to uh, to leave. So when Western countries take in Ukrainian immigrants, is it a way to? Let those men uh, fight with, without having uh, family obligations. What are the uh, what are the reasons, according to you, for the openness for being open to Ukrainian immigrants in order to help Ukraine in this war? 
Yes, this is one of the reasons because you know, without men, a lot of women and children would be very difficult for them to survive economically and help and assistance and uh, provided by Western countries allow them to kind of to have some kind of um, temporary solution to this issue, to have some uh, economic assistance, some housing and so on. And for men basically to continue fighting or to be able to stay in Ukraine and a lot of them wanted to leave Ukraine, but they are not able to do this. So, you know, because of this law, so this basically ensures that uh, kind of Ukrainian men would have no choice but uh, to fight. Uh, kind of, uh, and there are a lot of videos of Ukrainian men now taken by force into military. Even so, there was a lot of volunteers at the start of the Russian invasion to join voluntarily Ukrainian forces and territorial defense in particular. But now. A lot of uh, there is much less willingness to do this, and uh, there is much more kind of use of, of force to force um, men into uh, into Ukrainian military, and this is one reason again, which is will be very difficult because a lot of, in addition to a lot of um, Ukrainian men who are killed with this war, which I mentioned already, more than thirty thousand, based on my estimates, based on official Ukrainian government admissions of such casualties. So, so according to recent data, more than 100 Ukrainian, Ukrainian, Ukrainians are killed, military members are killed, and other, other forces members are killed in, in, uh, in this war during just one day, on average, each day. So there are a lot of casualties, but in addition to this, the number of wounded is very large, because for about one, one person killed, uh, typically there are like four, about four wounded. And a lot of people who are wounded, they would not be able to walk they lost their like kind of hands or feet and so on, or they have very severe injuries, which would prevent them from walking. And this would be again a very important solution because they, if they could not could not walk, they would need not only kind of um, to kind of uh, to provide uh, economic benefits for their families, but they also need to to be taken care of by themselves. And this is a very important issue because kind of uh, in the future it becomes very tough for. For kind of uh, in terms of Ukraine to function as a country, uh, because of a lot of people move to Western uh, kind of countries as refugees, especially women and children, and men who uh, who stay in Ukraine, a lot of them are casualties of this conflict, wounded, which would also kind of make kind of in terms of long term effect would be very negative. And I think this is a very important issue, which is often also not mentioned. But I think there is another reason for supporting Ukrainian immigration or kind of refugees, acceptance of refugees in contrast to kind of refugees from other countries is because uh, kind of this would be like cheap labor, kind of which uh, would be a source uh, specifically for jobs which do not require any qualification, basically like money or kind of like in construction or kind of in retail and so on, jobs which kind of in factories, uh, for instance, this would kind of enable to resolve this um, deficit or shortage of of people to work in, in, in this um, in these countries, because before the war, there was also significant illegal immigration of Ukrainians in countries like Italy, Poland, there were a lot of Kind of Ukrainians who move for economic reasons to these countries. They, they work there and mostly illegally. They, many of them got legal status afterwards, but this was a kind of economic motivation to move and stay in these countries, uh, specifically for reasons to, to do jobs. And often the jobs are unqualified jobs, low-paying jobs, but this was still considered to be better compared to what was possible to get in UK. I think this is another motivation for to kind of to find uh, kind of such um, support for uh, refugees from Ukraine, and this is 
think important issue, for instance, in Canada, uh, um, people who moved to Canada as um, based on this uh, new program, which is called Quiet Program, for helping Ukrainians affected by the war, they are not called refugees, so they don't get any benefits as refugees. They uh, they basically get work permit, which basically tells them to to have a job. If they could not do a job, so basically they could not stay in Canada, or it would be very difficult for them to stay in Canada for long term because they would not get any like protection like refugees. They but they give they have opportunity to work, and a lot of people who move to Canada. They find uh, jobs which are not qualified jobs, low-paying jobs, but you know, they have often no choice because of the war and because there are no other countries, uh, alternatives to, to find any kind of um, similar or better kind of a solution in this case. Yeah, so there is some form of externalization of uh, social and economic functions through immigration. That is, uh, in the absence of a functioning labor market in, in Ukraine, you can uh, find this uh, a, a substitute in, in neighboring countries. Likewise, you can find some sort of uh, social assistance in, uh, in other countries as it is um, as it is uh, uh, lacking uh, within Ukraine in the context uh, in the context of of the war, and um, I suppose that uh, there are similar reasons on the Russian side. That is, you mentioned that Russia allowed some people to leave Mariupol, but only to go to Russia. Why did Russia wanted to take those? Why did Russia want to take those people? I think again, uh, there are like political reasons because uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, so they wanted uh, also kind of to use this for, for political reasons to, to justify their Russian invasion because they uh, claim humanitarian reasons for the invasion of Ukraine. Even so, uh, just as I mentioned, genocide. So they, they would use the refugees basically show that they uh, provide protection. And this is why, uh, for instance, they also take uh, the children. From orphanages to Russia, to just to show that this is like humanitarian reasons and so on. But in addition to, to kind of geopolitical reasons, Russia also used um, kind of refugees um, from Ukraine also for similar purposes, like uh, to, uh, to fill jobs, like uh, a lot of jobs and unqualified jobs um, in in Russia, specifically in regions which are not well populated. So a lot of uh, uh, refugees were given the opportunity to move, for instance, to Siberia or to kind of other remote regions like rural areas, not to Moscow, not to St. Petersburg, but basically to regions which would, would be, uh, which have not very good conditions of life, but uh, kind of uh, Russian government wanted to basically settle them in these regions or far, far, east, far, far eastern regions of Russia, which uh, have declining populations. So this was another opportunity basically for Russia to use Ukrainian refugees for such purposes. In addition to geopolitical reasons, in addition to humanitarian reasons, this was kind of also economic uh, reason um, and justification. And I think a lot of people who moved as refugees both to Russia and to Western countries and countries like European Union members like Poland or Czech Republic would want to stay there for a long time. So this means now is, this will be again a very long you know, term impact on Ukraine because a lot of people who are kind of in their job age and kind of would, uh, would remain outside of Ukraine for even after war would end. And this would mean that a lot of, uh, this would be a big problem because already Ukraine had a very difficult situation because of aging population. There are a lot of people who are like in retirement age and it was basically, before the war, there was almost one to one 
person who was working and um, was employed and one one person who was um, already retired because retirement age was relatively low in Ukraine and especially for women and this meant um, now that a lot of people who are uh, work age uh, left Ukraine and people who are kind of older age remain in Ukraine this would also be a very important issue what would happen to them and what would happen in terms of collusion of uh, kind of a uh, social safety net, uh, social safety and uh, retirement payments and so on after the war, because uh, now Ukrainian government is able to provide pensions and uh, other social uh, benefits for Ukrainians like medicine, medical care and so on, and uh, even salaries to government employees by using uh, Western uh, economic support. And a lot of this support are in the forms of loans, or kind of like, um, which are, would be need, which Ukrainian government would have to repay after the war which would, again, create uh, even more dependency and would put in, in a much more uh, difficult situation the Ukrainian government after the war because it would need to have a lot of money to repay this economic support from Western countries after uh, kind of including salaries, paid and, and payments and pensions and so on. And it would not be enough for Ukrainian economy to provide a, a, a kind of income to be able to, for Ukrainian, um, again, standards of living to remain in pre-war level. And this is, would, I think, even lead to more immigration. After, if war would end, a lot of men would also give Ukraine uh, to Western countries or would try to do this because um, it would be a very difficult situation in terms of economic for Ukraine to survive after the war. And I think the war, but uh, I think the war would continue uh, now likely for, for not uh, for quite a long time because um, uh, neither Russia, neither Ukraine has a willingness to uh, peacefully resolve this. Um, they have very different demands. Uh, Zelensky proclaims that his goal is to take back control of uh, not only Donbass, but also Crimea, which is um, close, has to, close to zero chance. And Russia basically uh, kind of also uh, kind of, um, is not able to defeat Ukraine. Um, you know, it's, I don't think that they want to occupy entire Ukraine, but they are not able to uh, kind of achieve regime change in Ukraine into Russian government. And to do this militarily, it will take very long time and a lot of Russian casualties to even take back control over Donbass and other regions of uh, Ukraine, like southern, southern and eastern Ukraine, to be incorporated into Russia. So this would mean that the conflict would, uh, would uh, continue for a long time unless something radical happens. And, and I think unless, for instance, Western countries decide to kind of to to uh, to that a peaceful resolution would be uh, would be a possibility. In such case, the country can end uh, soon. But I, I don't see any such prospect because Western countries in the United States, in particular, still continue this policy of using Ukraine as a proxy um, with all this uh, Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very interesting point. You mentioned that uh, for Russia, it's also an opportunity to find uh, sometimes Russian-speaking people to 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 populate uh, far eastern areas of Russia. Uh, so um, they take in the pool of uh, of Ukrainian population uh, for for this uh, for this purpose. There may be a last reason, which is particularly at stake in the um, in the neighboring countries and the EU support for those neighboring countries is precisely trying to mitigate the risks that you mentioned. You mentioned that the main country in the West receiving Ukrainian migrants is Poland, both because it's uh, it's a country uh, which is directly confronted to the inflow, but also because uh, there is uh, there is a 
uh, an openness in that country and certainly uh, EU and Western support for Poland to, to take uh, many migrants. And by having uh, Ukrainian migrants in Poland, we can expect them to be more likely to return to Poland to Ukraine later than migrants, for instance, in the UK or Canada. Those ones, for sure, they are very unlikely to to return. So there may be a, a specific strategy as well to to promote uh, the emigration of Ukrainians to Poland and very nearby countries in order to promote later uh, the return of those migrants to 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 Ukraine. But I think uh, this may be a most, kind of more complex situation because Poland is a Slavic country, so the language issue is a very important issue for, my, for refugees from the UK because a lot of refugees who move to Canada or to countries like Germany or France or, or, or kind of Italy or Spain, they do not speak languages. So this means it will be very tough to find jobs or even integration in society would be, would be very difficult, like education, like schools and so on, but in Poland, it's possible to understand Polish because Polish is a kind of is a language which is similar to Ukrainian, a lot of similarities. So it so it's kind of communication is much easier. It's much easier to find jobs and use a language for a lot of Ukrainians in Poland. And there is also kind of historical connection. A lot of Ukrainians in Western Ukraine still know Polish because like Western Ukraine used to be part of Poland until World War II. So this means there are still a lot of people who speak Polish and understand Polish, and even my own family, you know, they live in Poland after before World War II until they were expelled as a part of ethnic cleansing after as Ukrainians after World War II. So this is a kind of a situation when I think a lot of Ukrainians would want to stay in Poland for a longer time, and specifically because even Polish government policy before. Before the Russian invasion was to give Ukrainian opportunities to stay in Poland, so they gave permit. It's easier to get permit for Ukrainians in Poland, uh, kind of, than in many other countries to work and to stay uh, for long term because uh, Poland also has similar kind of situation uh, of uh, finding uh, basic economic uh, work, workforce uh, for unqualified jobs like factories and and so on, uh, retail and so on, low-paying jobs. And a lot of Ukrainians are able to work in such uh, jobs, but also some doctors are able to, to find jobs in Poland. But when they move to Western countries, they like, for instance, in Canada, uh, any kind of education, qualifications, like doctors are not able to work in Canada. Uh, Ukrainian doctors or, or teachers, teachers or any other qualified professionals, they are not able to find jobs in Canada because this uh, Canada requires Western education or recognition of such degrees. And, and Ukrainian degrees are not recognized as equivalent, so this makes it very difficult because doctors, for instance, would have to work on qualified jobs. And if Poland, this country is better, better because in Poland, there was also immigration from Poland to Western Europe, in particular United Kingdom, after Poland became a member of the European Union. So a lot of people moved from, from Poland to like Germany, to like United Kingdom, because of higher salaries, more economic prospects, and for this reason, Polish government wants to use the Ukrainian Kind of migrants, to, um, refugees, to fill out this um, kind of gap in terms of uh, movement of uh, economic workforce, and uh, specifically for low qualified jobs and, or jobs which will, would not be like agriculture jobs and so on, which would be low paying but, but not, and not qualified. But Ukrainian refugees and, and migrants would be willing to work in this uh, in this uh, occupations and these jobs. A very good point that after the large immigration waves from Poles of Poles in the European Union, 
having some immigrants from Ukraine may be may be also useful economically for for Poland. Anyway, so that's um, this. Um, we have discussed various aspects of of the conflict, its causes, uh, the the importance of the. Uh, displacements of population that it has triggered and uh, and also why these movements of population matter to uh, to the major uh, the major actors of uh, of this conflict and um you Ivan, you, you you have been very active on on this uh, on these various questions you have uh, given a, a lot of interviews have written a lot of of uh, newspaper uh, articles you are also very active on twitter so how do you see uh, the role of um, intellectual and researchers uh, in in this conflict? Uh, like many wars, this conflict is uh, characterized by by the fog of war, uh, both on the Western star- side and on the Russian side. The media have clearly taken side. Uh, what is the, what is the role of uh, of intellectuals and researchers in this context? And what are the needs that they can uh, they can uh, answer? The role of intellectuals is very important in this uh, war because this is like conflict which needs to be understood before it can be resolved. It's necessary to understand uh, how we can qualify this conflict, what are the reasons for this conflict, how it's possible to resolve this conflict, what are options. And I think there is a failure, intellectual failure in the West to, to deal with this war, which is, I think, the most important conflict right now in the world, most important issue in the world. But there is little interest, actually, among a lot of intellectuals, there is a little interest in actually trying to understand the causes of this conflict, origins of this conflict, the complex nature of this conflict. And what you see a lot of in media publications, this is quite surprising, and also like social media, there is often like this perspective, like a kind of, like uh, talking using analogy from World War II applying to this conflict, which is uh, uh, kind of there are different wars taking place uh, since World War II and even before World War II, which are which are much more similar to to war in Ukraine. But they always apply this is like a struggle between a kind of um, of, uh, of World War II level, which is uh, I regard this is I also studied World War II and this is not applicable I think in this case uh, to this war. But they often use such analogy, and when you have an analogy of World War II, so you have basically this very little to discuss. So this is like would cause any option to discuss and even debate, because this is like a kind of such perspective which limits intellectual possibility to discuss this. And for this reason, I think another issue is that a lot of intellectuals they they don't know a lot of about this conflict, its origins and background and its nature, because they rely on media, kind of on media. And politicians, they give a kind of perspective which is uh, which is very different from what taking place. And this is what I mentioned. And this is why I think research is very important by scholars who study conflict professionally. And, and we need to address this issue professionally, not using like politics, not to give people what they want to hear, like which is often given by politicians and, and experts, which are used kind of by the media. So they basically they tell people what they want to hear, like that Ukraine is winning this war, that there is a genocide. Kind of um, and so on. This is like all this um, kind of talk, which is I think is not helping Ukraine because uh, for the reasons which I mentioned, which is actually has negative impact on this war because alternatives are actually much more difficult now 
and uh, and uh, lost opportunities. Actually, in the future, if you can, uh, much more difficult as a result of this lost opportunities, which I mentioned, like preventing this war or getting you, you can uh, European Union membership or having peaceful uh, kind of resolution of this conflict, which was blocked before. So a lot of people just uh, follow kind of um, in terms of increasing surprising intellectuals who are supposed to be kind of more curious and more kind of uh, independent in their views. They touch basically they just follow all this uh, perspective which is kind of which is um, based on media coverage which is often uh, kind of very primitive and uh, often inaccurate. And another issue is that now it became very difficult even for researchers for academics to voice their opinion. So a lot of dominant uh, kind of perspective narratives uh, are based on views of politicians or views by uh, experts who have no knowledge of Ukraine or conflict, but they are like former military, military officials or former government officials, and they now became experts in Ukraine, and the genuine academic experts, including from Ukraine, like who study this, and there are only few experts in the West who are actually Ukrainians who know languages, who are able to kind of do research about this conflict professionally, not just relying on this kind of Kind of knowledge, they are experts in context. They study not only this context but many other contexts. But but this is uh, this is actually their views are not given even opportunity to present. And even uh, often it's not possible. Even in academia now, it's not possible um, even to publish something. Kind of, I recently had a paper on the Maidan massacre, which was accepted by uh, after peer review was accepted by an um, uh, editor from a social science journal, from peer review journal based on my research and after this acceptance this acceptance was uh, based on peer review and um, and then the, the journal changed this decision and they rejected my article basically because uh, kind of openly saying uh, editor was mentioning that this is like the problem is is not this article is this evidence is solid and peer review peer reviewers agreed with my uh, evidence about my massacre, which was presented in my study, but the problem was political because political conclusions uh, they do not like political conclusions. Uh, editor, uh, kind of another editor who blocks this, uh, blocks this um, acceptance of my article, and one of the peer reviewers did not like my uh, kind of conclusions of uh, political implications of my article about origins of this conflict, and this is why uh, they rejected this article. So it's not even possible often now for academics like scholars. Like me, who studied this conflict for a very long time, even to publish something in academia because politics now dominates. And this is, I think, very unfortunate because if you have conflict, then, then knowledge about this conflict needs to be the most important issue. You know, there is need to for such knowledge. And if you have, if you have censorship of of ideas which are kind of which are goes against government narrative, this is a problem. Not with researchers who study this, this is a problem with such narrative. And this is like in democracies, it's necessary to have views of different people, and, kind of, and especially you know, people who might have uh, provide a solution to this conflict. But I, I think now, because of political reasons, which I mentioned, using you can uh, for proxy war, uh, researchers are not kind of uh, views of actual researchers, scholars who study this conflict are not uh, in demand. Kind of, they are um, kind of, they are not dominant. Basically, they are over kind of overwhelmed by uh, views of politicians, by by the media, and by people who have no knowledge about this conflict, but uh, kind of now regarded as experts, and they dominate the media coverage and uh, kind of social media and other perspectives. And so I think this is again very unfortunate for Ukraine for this conflict because kind of knowledge now is suppressed and, uh, and in favor of politics, and politics is dom dominant, but. Um, 
I think uh, for the future of Ukraine, this is a resolution of this conflict, which affects also people in many other countries and has the potential of becoming much wider. So it's necessary to understand what happened and what kind of consequences it will be and how it's possible to resolve this conflict. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's perfectly clear that there is a need of knowledge about both the causes and the possible solutions. Uh, and the side that will be the most knowledgeable is going to prevail at the end of the day, the side that will understand the, the local reality very well and be able to, to design tailored solutions to stabilize the country is going to prevail. So the, the, the idea is that expertise and knowledge are necessary is clear. The question that you suggest is whether there is a demand, a genuine demand for this kind of services uh, uh, on both sides. And both of us, we are on, on the Western side. That is, in, in, in the West, uh, is you, you mentioned some, some form of censorship. So do you think there is no demand for uh, expertise services? Or do you think there is nevertheless, and major institutions are really are ready to to reach out to experts and people like you who know well uh, the the situation to find solutions to this to this conflict? So I can compare, like uh, I can compare just my experience and my knowledge uh, with uh, this war after Russian invasion with what happened in Ukraine after Maidan. So after Maidan, there was some kind of. Um, more openness for views of academics, of researchers, and experts, or actually academic experts like, like me on this conflict and this war. For instance, I, uh, I was um, you know, asked by US Congress members to give my expert opinion on, on this uh, on issues, which were also used by US Congress to adopt amendment, which was based on my research partially and research by other scholars, which was adopted unanimously by US Congress. I also was invited by other U.S. government agencies to work as an expert, as, a, as, as an expert on Ukraine, to provide my expert knowledge on Ukraine. Uh, I also did this for Canadian government, kind of to provide expert uh, kind of opinion and expert knowledge, uh, and give lectures about Ukrainian conflicts and so on to, to um, Canadian government and military who went to Ukraine before this war. But after the war, this uh, like again, no government, basically no government. Uh, express any interest in kind of in uh, in any opinion. This is, uh, I think, quite surprising because now this is even became much more important and much more dangerous. So, but now there's uh, very little, a little kind of uh, interest in this regard. And the same media, like again, it was possible. I published after after Maidan. I published my article like in Washington Post and had interviews like the Reuters, Associated Press. My research was also published like um, on uh, this uh, was in UK in London Bus and other. Issues was published by a lot of other media, like Guardian um, about World War II, and um, so a lot of top media published my research and so on. But after this war, again, uh, especially this U.S. media, there was almost a very significant drop in interest. Uh, kind of, uh, uh, there was uh, I gave a lot of interviews to Canadian media, to European, to Spanish media, other media in European countries, but in U.S. media, like top media, basically, like Washington Post, now even it's not possible to publish anything. So basically, it became close to U.S. media, which is leading democracy in the world. 
but the media become basically close to kind of even to opinions because and this is not based on knowledge because I see like I read uh, each day articles in U.S. media publications about this war by people who have no knowledge basically I do not see any kind of expert knowledge any background anything but they publish uh, the articles they publish the kind of they're quoted in media and so on but actual experts now uh, it's not possible to have any kind of views by leading media like um, for instance uh, Washington Post New York Times. CNN and so on, they, they basically block from any kind of using expert um, experts on this regard. And this is a big change from what happened uh, since Maidan. Uh, even so, there was similar trajectory since Maidan, but this is now very uh, kind of different outcome. And I think this is a big issue because if if you have um, such censorship in this regard by the media, kind of by leading media, like leading democracy, like in the United States, which was uh, kind of a model for for the world, this uh, would have, uh, I think, uh, basic implications because there are no debates in the US. So this is like, for me, this is like, often looks like the Soviet Union when you have just one party in line and the, on this issue and there are no debates. And even you, you have to agree with this, even if you're academic, basically, if you don't agree with this, so basically you cannot do anything. So they basically, they ignore this or you consider this kind of uh, not acceptable. So that's why. Uh, this is uh, very dangerous. And the same even applies now to academia. So I published a lot of articles, books on this topic before. Before, uh, even, It was not easy to do this. Again, it was considered to be a difficult topic. When I was given an interview, um, when I was given a presentation based on my research about regional divisions and conflicts in UK at Harvard University, UK Research Institute, about 2010, I was told by, um, by one professor who was, again, one of uh, top scholars in Ukrainian studies that, um, uh, at Harvard that, um, you should not, that I should not talk about this issue of regional divisions and conflicts in Ukraine because this is a dangerous issue. So Because even talking about this issue is dangerous. So, so he told me this is like, uh, this issue basically needs to be ignored for political reasons. And this is professor at Harvard who studies Ukrainian kind of history and so on. But you cannot study this issue. And this is like, was kind of, uh, even at the time, was kind of uh, trying to kind of prevent a discussion of this issue and so on. And after Maidan, it becomes even more significant. And now after Russian invasion, it becomes much more even difficult in academia to publish anything which is uh, which is not kind of consistent with this narrative because uh, kind of what I mentioned, like my Maidan massacre article, I had similar kind of issue with far-right article, which is uh, about far, the role of far-right. Which is another issue which I researched for a very long time. Again, uh, we have an, uh, and uh, just uh, today again issue with uh, this article about war in, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. This is again uh, they do not even send uh, to basically editors are afraid to publish research which goes uh, academic research. They do not even submit this to peer review, and if it's submitted to peer review, this is actually is unaccepted um, after peer review. This is still uh, could not be published because uh, kind of, this would contradict all this uh, simplistic and uh, kind of and, um, and uh, narrative which is based on politics but not based on real facts, which is much more complex. This is not like kind of, um, kind of uh, something which is uh, how to say kind of um, something which is um, just uh, speculation or something. This is based on research, based on uh, kind of uh, theories, based on evidence, but now it's not possible even in academia to publish this with a few exceptions. I think this is a very dangerous trajectory in this regard. If you have censorship in academia, this is like becomes on such issue, crucial issues, then it becomes what's the purpose of academia when scholars are supposed to have tenure 
tenures, supposed to provide, protect academic freedom and not basically just follow what the narrative from the government or politicians or by the media. Because if if uh, scholars just repeat well, everything which is said by the media, by the government, by politicians, then uh, there is no need for academics in the first place. Because why to do any research if this research just uh, repeats um, kind of research which is um, given by politicians or not, by, not research by narratives given by politicians without any evidence and then repeated by the media. And this, this is very dangerous and negative development. And I, I'm going to see if this is going to be, again, a long-term development. But I think the trajectory now is very kind of negative in this regard. All right. Yes. So it seems that um, ideological or even nationalistic uh, affiliation in this case trumps uh, real uh, expertise in this uh, information market. Let's see. Let's see how how long it lasts and where where it leads. So um, we 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 have had some. Uh, some students of mine who are listening to us. Uh, uh, Antoine has uh, been um, has been uh, working on the on this issue. Antoine has gone to Ukraine and he has produced a policy brief recently, uh, published by uh, by Eliamep about um, about uh, population displacements in in the Ukraine war. Um, Antoine, you want do you want to ask a, a question to uh, to Ivan? Yes, good evening, and uh, thank you for this very interesting speech. Uh, um, I had um, two questions which are actually related to each other um, about the causes of the war in Ukraine. Um, the first one is this one. Do you think that the border delimitation of the Socialist Republic of Ukraine in the 1920s under Moscow's authority could be mentioned among the causes of the current war in Ukraine? And um, if yes, do you think it would be relevant to compare the situation between Ukraine and Russia regarding their borders with the one of other ex-Soviet socialist republics, uh, such as uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, for instance? Yes, I think this is like, a, uh, would be relevant to us because uh, this is how you can imagine. And the history of Ukraine is also relevant. And in my dissertation and in my book, which I publish, I compare like differences, political differences in Ukraine after independence. And this difference go back to historical experience because, uh, as I mentioned, Western Ukraine used to be part of Poland before World War II. But before this, um, a lot of you, uh, many regions of Western Ukraine used to be part of Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was very different politically and. Um, and a geopolitical orientation compared to regions of other regions of Ukraine, which used to be part of the Russian Empire and then part of the Soviet Union. So a lot of these regions have very different historical experience, and this would explain why Western Ukraine was always pro-Western and Eastern Ukraine was pro-Russian in terms of the orientation, which goes back to historical reasons, specifically after Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union, but also before when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. But in addition to this, the issue of borders of uh, Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian state is a very crucial issue because um, Putin specifically mentioned this uh, in his uh, publication here, specifically mentioned that borders of, uh, of Ukraine, which were established by the Soviet leaders after Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union, he said that they included a lot of regions which were Russian regions. So this uh, kind of provides a justification for Russian invasion. So Russian, Russia used justification for its invasion, basically saying that a lot of regions of Ukraine, like Crimea, 
which was uh, given by uh, kind of to Ukraine from Russian Federation uh, by Khrushchev during Soviet times. The kind of uh, Putin justified this annexation of this region also by saying this was given illegally. And this was Russian region, historically, and so on. Before uh, Khrushchev's decision, even going back to the Russian Empire, and the same was applying to Donbass and other regions. Basically, Putin said, stated that Ukraine is not actual country, or not a kind of um, not a real country, because it includes the regions which he called Novorossiya regions, which are regions in the south of Ukraine and uh, and eastern Ukraine. And this is would be one of the reasons why Russia annexed the regions of Ukraine. Uh, not only Donbass, which is populated by almost half of population ethnically Russian, and mostly and, and they annexed Crimea, which is mostly ethnically Russian region, but they also uh, basically annexed the uh, regions of Kherson and uh, and part of the Persia region, and, um, which are ethnically Ukrainian. But uh, Putin regarded them, them as historically part of Russia. Using this term Nova Russia or Nova, Nova, no, New Russia as a term of going back to kind of pre Soviet times. And he said basically the Soviet decision by Lenin basically to establish borders of the Soviet Socialist Republics of Ukraine was not actually based on real population. A lot of regions he, he claimed were historically Russian. This is, would be one of the reasons which was used by Putin to justify Russian invasion of Ukraine and annexation of these regions of Ukraine in the south and the east. And this might be also explanation why Russia might not be limited just to annexing Donbass and, and uh, regions of um, Kherson and and, uh, and region also of Azerbaijan, but they might also go to other regions, which they consider to be part of uh, Novorossiya or New Russia, which is um, like a part of, um, uh, for instance, Odessa region in the south, and Kharkiv region in the east. So this is other potential regions which might be annexed by Russia, if Russia would be able to occupy them um, as a, using military force. Okay, all right. And um, and Anna has been a, a student of mine uh, of uh, international history. Anna, do you, do you have a question for, uh, for Ivan? Yes, thank you very much. Um, for interesting discussion, and um, I have also two questions. The first one is about NATO um, and Ukraine relations, and uh, particularly, I would like to ask you about Bucharest summit in 2008. So both Ukraine and Georgia were promised that both countries would become the members of the NATO, and it's been 15 years. Um, and after Bucharest summit, Georgia was attacked by Russia and Ukraine in 2014, and now this uh, war of aggression uh, that we the whole world seeing what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Uh, so would you expect that um, Ukraine would insist on its, uh, would climb on its right, so to speak, uh, to become a member of NATO anytime soon? What's your ex uh, assumption and expectations in this regard? Um, and secondly, and especially because the Baltic states was also, I mean, they share relatively the same history, right? Because they were also members of the Soviet Union and they also share border with Russia. And yet uh, membership was, in, was not denied to them, but it was denied to Georgia and uh, Ukraine. Um, uh, so what's your uh, assumptions and expectations in this regard? And second question is about peaceful resolution that you mentioned a couple of times. Um, how do you see if you have any um, sort of suggestions? What should be on the table? What can Ukraine negotiate on, and what can Ukraine suggest um, uh, in, in in this respect? Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I wrote an article on this topic of um, European Union and NATO integration 
of of our countries, post-communist countries. So looking just statistically in all the countries and um, in terms of the integration and accession of European Union and NATO, and I published that, this article in 2011, I think 2011 or 2010, in peer review journal. And based on my research, then I said there, there was um, basically countries which are post-Soviet, including countries specifically, I mentioned uh, countries um, which would include Ukraine, uh, Georgia, uh, and also like I think Armenia, and Moldova and Belarus, they had no real prospects of becoming members of European Union or NATO. In contrast to countries like, which were uh, countries um, like in Poland, which became or Czech Republic, which became members of these both um, organizations, but also countries in former Yugoslavia, which were offered membership for European Union as as either as became already members, like Slovenia and Croatia had the possibility of joining the European Union and become members of NATO. And, uh, and in contrast also to Baltic states. And I think the reason for this, because they used to be part of the Soviet Union. So this was a big division, which prevented uh, countries of uh, post-Soviet countries, with the exception of Baltic states, of becoming members of the European Union and becoming also members of NATO. Even before this, um, before this war and before the Russian uh, invasion, which um, and I think this uh, the key distinction why Baltic states were able to join the European Union and NATO. It goes back to history because Western countries, including the United States, never recognized um, annexation of these regions by the Soviet Union uh, during World War II kind of, as a result of Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. So this was not recognized by um, by the Western countries, and the Baltic states were regarded basically as part of the West, which was initially annexed by by, uh, by the Soviet Union. And for this reason, uh, they were able to get very fast stuck into European Union membership and NATO, but the same did not apply to countries like Russia, Ukraine, or Belarus, or Moldova, and Georgia, because uh, they used to, they were part of the Soviet Union, but considered to be part of the Russian sphere of influence. And another reason why uh, uh, it would be very difficult uh, to become members of the European Union and NATO is because of um, kind of there are like different factors, basically, but economic development was much uh, weaker in these countries. So economically, Ukraine is one of the poorest countries, and Moldova, for instance, one of the poorest countries in Europe, and also Georgia has a very significant economic decline after um, its uh, wars and uh, conflicts. Uh, so this is uh, countries in terms of economic development, they are much uh, less economically developed compared to uh, to Baltic states or countries like Czech Republic or, Slo or Slovakia or Slovenia or Poland. So this means that um, it, uh, for economically, it would need to, it would be necessary to have um, very uh, significant funding from countries of European Union to provide support for European Union membership. But in terms of NATO, there is a security issue because to um, become members of NATO uh, for countries which are in the middle of a conflict, like uh, including Georgia, there was uh, like dispute, still dispute between, between kind of, um, this uh, Russian. Of, uh, recognized uh, independence of South Ossetia as a result of this war between Russia and Georgia in 2018 and Abkhazia, which is again uh, kind of, um, and uh, in case of Moldova, similar issue with Transnistria region, which is not recognized by Russia, but de facto is independent. In case of uh, Ukraine, this issue with, uh, with um, um, Crimea, which is annexed by Russia, now also with uh, Donbass, which is also annexed by Russia. So this is, means that uh, all these countries have territorial conflicts with Russia, and a potential military conflict with Russia. So for, for them to become members of NATO would require that NATO would agree basically to possibility of war with Russia, with nuclear power country, with nuclear country. For this reason, 
uh, like Western countries would have almost no kind of real kind of desire to join, to accept these countries into NATO, because this would mean that they would have to fight Russia, or kind of and, uh, nuclear, which, can, which might lead to nuclear war. So, so for this reason, kind of, they, I don't think that there is any real prospect of membership of countries like Ukraine or Georgia or Moldova in in the NATO in NATO for kind of immediate future unless something uh, something radically changed. Okay, so there would be kind of war outcome which would be very different, or some uh, there would be some major changes in policy or Russia leadership or uh, and so on. But this is not very likely, and I think this is a very crucial issue because now uh, Zelensky policy even before. Uh, this war and after the war was basically to promise Ukraine that Ukraine would become a member of NATO very soon. And he kind of still continues this policy uh, now, with one exception. So after Russian invasion, Zelensky agreed basically to you can become a neutral country. And this was a very major change. And this was also a very important change because Russia, one of the key demands of Russia was that you can not join NATO. And before the war, there was uh, also Russian, this was the same Russian demand. Basically, for the Western countries to renounce Ukraine uh, from any prospect of joining NATO, this was key demand by Russia, and this uh, this demand was refused by Western countries by and by Ukraine. And I think this was a very missed chance because in reality there was no real prospect of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. So this was no big concession to give, but in exchange it was possible to avoid this war, which was which has devastating effect on Ukraine. So this is kind of I think this was a very kind of important issue which um, lost solution this was uh, one way in which peace, peaceful resolution of this conflict could happen but it never happened because of uh, kind of basically refusal to kind of to uh, admit that you can would not become a member of NATO basically to admit uh, reality and uh, because uh, publicly specifically uh, during this Bucharest summit NATO agreed that you can and Georgia would become members of NATO in some future without actually Having any real opportunity to do this. And Zelensky, in one of his interviews, I think CNN interviews, said that uh, he was privately told by Western government officials and dealers from Western countries that Ukraine has no possibility of joining NATO, but uh, publicly they cannot say this. So this is, uh, was basically policy of, uh, of kind of using just public promises without any possibility of real membership. And this is actually kind of was one missed uh, possibility to resolve this conflict. And I think uh, in terms of uh, how peaceful resolution could be achieved, I think this is one also key issue. I think uh, Ukraine agreeing to become a neutral country or not joining NATO is a kind of real possibility to have a, some kind of peaceful resolution of this conflict because uh, the peaceful agreement which was negotiated by Israeli Prime Minister um, after soon after Russian invasion in March of, of uh, last year kind of involved this promise by Zelensky that Ukraine would not become a member of uh, NATO, which is again not a very big kind of concession because in reality this this is not very likely to happen in any case in any future unless something radical would change and I think this is a kind of a um, possibility but now I think a peaceful resolution is much more difficult because after now Russia next regions of Ukraine Donbass and Kherson uh, and the Persian region, so Russia would not renounce uh, kind of annexation of these regions in contrast to situation when uh, this was possible in March of last year. It was possible for Russia kind of uh, to withdraw from occupied regions of Kherson and the Persian Kharkiv because at the time Russia did not have any kind of occupation administration from these regions in contrast to Donbass. 
And, and this was actually kind of also missed opportunity. But now I think it would be for Ukrainian government to agree to this, and for Western governments to agree to this would be not acceptable. So I think uh, real possibility of peaceful resolution is now very, very small. And I think one possible outcome would be basically to leave this kind of outside, to leave status of these regions outside of agreement, which was also debated uh, and as a possible uh, solution uh, during talks which were held by Israeli Prime Minister, um, peace talks, and uh, basically to say that the status of this region will be determined later and accept the fact of solution, similar to what was accepted by Poroshenko and Western leaders in case of Minsk agreement. So this would be like basically a new Minsk agreement, but more formal, and involving kind of, kind of uh, countries, not only UK, but also United States and other countries, which would provide more kind of guarantees this agreement would be fulfilled. But I don't think this is, uh, again, any real possibility because of policies of uh, now Russia and, and uh, Western countries and UK, they only uh, prefer now military solution to this conflict. So military solution, they regard as possibility of winning this war as a real possibility. But I don't think this is a very good option for UK because Russia has much bigger military advantage, and even with supplies of Western weapons, still Russia has military advantage, and they can still mobilize more forces and still can um, kind of fight in Ukraine. So, so the only outcome which is most likely is now this kind of uh, basically acceptance of de facto status of uh, basically frontline situation similar to Korea war outcome or acceptance of some kind of. Um, de facto status formally as a part of agreement, but um, uh, again, which is not very likely, uh, but the military solution would, uh, so basically fate of UK would be decided as a, as a result of this war, and I'm kind of skeptical that UK would be able to defeat Russia because again, uh, UK is uh, has in a disadvantage in this regard in terms of military force, and Russia still is nuclear power, so Russia can always use a uh, kind of set of nuclear weapons if uh, if they would be set to Crimea or, or any other regions of Russia controlled by Russia, uh, for instance, uh, annexed region of Donbass as well. So in this case, uh, again, uh, Russia would not uh, agree to kind of uh, to renouncing its annexed regions of uh, Crimea and, and Donbass in any case, and uh, they claim also kind of uh, control over wider part of Ukraine. So this is, I think, now a very tough situation, very difficult situation, and peaceful solution, I think, would still be beneficial for Ukraine because the longer war continues, the worse situation for Ukraine would be. And this is now, I think, acknowledged by many other kind of politicians and experts, but they even so they do not talk about this publicly. I think this is a very tough situation for Ukraine in the future. And uh, Putin's speech tomorrow would be very crucial in this regard. If they were, he, for instance, he would announce a war, kind of an uh, open war with Ukraine, um, and this would lead to even a greater mobilization of Russian forces or so on, or if he might announce some kind of peaceful proposal, basically to accept the fate de facto status, which is, I don't think it would be, again, a long-term solution to this conflict, or, or viable solution to this conflict. All right. Uh, this, uh, the question was very good, and uh, the, the answer as well. That is, um, uh, there are there are differences between the Baltic states and um, Ukraine or Georgia. Uh, they are historical. Uh, the Baltic states had uh, a longer uh, in the 20th century episode of independence. Uh, they are also, uh, and it's partly related to that. Uh, the the borders are more mixed 
in Ukraine and Georgia with separatist regions that are uh, that you do not have in in the Baltic states and a lower uh, level of development make also the region uh, less uh, less uh, important for for foreign powers. I mean for especially the, the EU in this case. And so we may be, but hopefully the parallels between uh, Ukraine and Georgia will stop here because uh, Ukraine uh, Ukraine will be obviously the main the main victim of the situation and, and, the, and the Ukrainian uh, people as well. And as you suggested at the end, uh, the, we may go towards the situation of Ukraine being a sort of buffer zone uh, between uh, between spheres uh, spheres of Western influence and and, and Russia, because uh, fully fledged integration of Ukraine could be uh, could be quite dangerous and as well also economically costly in, uh, for 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 the EU. Uh, in any case, uh, this has been a, a devastating conflict already, just after one year, um, a large human toll, a lot, uh, millions of people uh, displaced. Uh, so I, I really appreciated uh, all the nuances you, you provided into the into the debate, how uh, to to give a, an idea of how complex the situation is. And uh, and uh, I leave you as a final thought about uh, this question of refugees in the Ukraine war. I think this uh, issue of refugees would depend on outcome of the war in Ukraine, because if the war would continue for a long time, the number of refugees would increase. In particular, if there would be a new Russian offensive, for instance, which is um, kind of expected and was announced by um, even White House recently, that they have information, and the Ukrainian government also announced that Russia plans to launch a new large-scale offensive, which would mean kind of fighting going to other regions, and particularly if this fighting would involve like major cities like Kharkiv or Dnipro or Odessa, this would mean a much bigger wave of refugees from these regions, uh, kind of, and from Western Ukraine as well, from even from Kyiv, if uh, if the war would impact many other regions of Ukraine, which is again would have a, even greater impact on the number of refugees. And this would also mean that a lot of people who just moved, went to uh, other countries temporarily, they wanted just to kind of um, just uh, have a temporary residence uh, during this war, would remain in their countries for a longer time and would not return to UK because many of them, I think there was evidence that um, quite a large number of people returned from uh, like Western Europe, uh, from, uh, from Poland to Ukraine, to regions which are not impacted by this war in particular, uh, but now they would have to come back or they would um, kind of have to, again, uh, leave these areas uh, along with new people. This is, I think, a very crucial issue. So uh, outcome of the war would de determine a number of refugees if this would increase or uh, decrease, and also would determine the fate of refugees in, in uh, countries in particular Western Europe and Poland or Canada, if they would stay in these countries or if they would uh, come back to Ukraine. And I think the longer war would continue, the greater chances that number of refugees would increase, that um, and the number of uh, and the number of refugees who are in these countries would want to stay would also increase, which would have again a very negative effect on UK and ability to survive economically and, and politically in the future, and also militarily in the future because this um, would uh, impact uh, kind of Ukrainian uh, ability to again to to fight, but also to uh, to be viable economically. And I think the one possible solution to this issue is if you can become a member of the European Union, 
if there's uh, such possibility, or even not a member of European Union immediately, but there will be real prospect of European Union membership with a lot of funding and support from the European Union. In such case, you can might be able to resolve a lot of these issues or try to kind of alleviate these issues. And, but I am quite skeptical that this uh, European Union membership would happen uh, soon, or if there is even, uh, and there is no certainty that this uh, membership would happen at all because of a variety of reasons, some of which I already mentioned in uh, our discussion based on my research. So I think that this kind of uh, very dangerous situation for Ukraine, and a lot of Ukrainians suffer of this war, the refugees actually of this war, um, a number of refugees, and their fate is just one manifestation of uh, this. Uh, conflict and the importance of this conflict, which would still impact not only UK but many other countries for a very long time. All right, thank you, thank you very much, Ivan. It was it was really a pleasure to to listen to you. Yeah, bye bye. Yeah, thank you.